Hello and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on this Thursday, February 1st. I'm your reader, Wally Helms. Take a look at the front page and we have on the right side a double column that's headlined Dubuque officials oppose bill to ban speed cameras. This is reported by Maya Bond. Just over two months after Dubuque City Council members approved implementing automated speed cameras in the city, a bill moving through the Iowa legislature aims to outlaw them entirely. The bill, Senate Bill, Senate Study Bill 3016, combines both a ban on handheld use of a cell phone while operating a vehicle and a ban on automated or remote traffic enforcement systems used to enforce traffic laws. An Iowa Senate subcommittee this week advanced the bill to the full Senate Judiciary Committee. Both Dubuque Mayor Brad Kavanaugh and Police Chief Jeremy Jensen attended the subcommittee hearing and spoke in opposition to the bill. Kavanaugh said in an interview with the Telegraph Herald that while they opposed the bill overall, he and Jensen are in favor of hands-free driving laws. We really should be separating these two things, and we should be having a separate discussion about the automated traffic enforcement cameras, Kavanaugh said. He said he welcomes discussions on how to regulate the use of traffic cameras, whether that be more consistent fines and fees, or camera regulations across the state, but believes an outright ban is too heavy-handed. Dubuque City Council members in November approved an ordinance regulating the cameras, and city leaders currently are seeking vendors to supply and maintain them. Council members are expected to consider approving a vendor March 6. Kavanaugh said the city of Dubuque took a nearly a year to discuss and gather feedback on traffic cameras before the council approved them which he said was responsible and thoughtful. He said the legislature should take the same approach to learn why cities have chosen to use traffic cameras. We put them there because tra of traffic safety. We want people to slow down, Kavanaugh said. It's a tool that the police department can use. We're doing it as responsibly as we possibly can, as transparently as we can. Jensen said he is open to the state implementing guardrails that ensure communities can't misuse the cameras, such as regulating the costs of tickets issued to motorists caught by them. However, he said Dubuque's plan does have some guardrails, such as placing cameras at least 1,000 feet away from, from speed limit changes and using multiple kinds of speed and crash data to determine where cameras will be most effective. This is a tool for law enforcement. It's using it as a tool, but using it correctly, like we do any other tool, with good policy, good law, and good checks and balances, Jensen said. Iowa Representative Steve Bradley, Republican from Cascade, uh, he said he would vote to ban traffic cameras because the majority of his constituents told him they are opposed to their usage. He said constituents have told him they think traffic cameras are in overreach by cities and are used to make money not keep drivers safe. Iowa Senator Pam Jokum, Democrat from Dubuque, said both traffic camera bans and hands-on free driving legislation have come before the Iowa Senate before, and both are important public safety topics. She said she's in favor of banning the handheld use of a cell phone while driving, but would not vote to ban traffic cameras. Handheld phones and high speeds 
are the top two causes of vehicle crashes and deaths on Iowa's streets and highways, Yoakum said. It's time that we take public safety seriously. Once up and running in Dubuque, the traffic cameras placed along major city roadways will identify and photograph vehicles traveling over the speed limit at predetermined thresholds. Under the ordinance approved by council members, vehicles traveling on roads with speed limits of less than 45 miles per hour and undivided highways with a 45 mile per hour speed limit only will be issued citations if they exceed the limit by at least 11 miles per hour. Cameras on divided highways with a speed limit of 45 miles per hour or higher will not identify potential citations until a vehicle travels at least 16 miles per hour over the limit. Dubuque Police Department personnel will review all potential violations captured by the speed cameras and approve the issuance of any civil citations and fines. Automated speed citations stemming from the cameras will not be added to the vehicle owner's driving record. Dubuque City Manager Mike Van Milligan said the legislation is on city officials' radar, but for now, staff will continue to work toward implementing the cameras. The reporter was Maya Bond, is, and she is a Report for America Corps member. The article is accompanied by a picture of several of those mentioned in the, uh, in the article, Brad Kavanaugh and Jeremy Jensen. The main headline on the front page is uh, features a large color picture of several uh, elementary school students sitting on the floor in a circle, looks like three or four of them, and the headline of the article is Bill to Reform Iowa AEAs Facing Uncertain Future. This is reported by Benjamin Fisher. Republican Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' newest pitch to reshape special education and other school services advanced from one of two subcommittees Wednesday, but with seemingly little enthusiasm for most of the bill's reforms. Reynolds' amended proposal to reform the state's area education agencies received subcommittee hearings Wednesday in both the Iowa House of Representatives and Senate. Iowa's AEAs provide public and private school districts with special education and other services, including teacher training, materials and equipment support, mental health and crisis support, long-range planning, and work-based learning. An initial bill filed by Reynolds in the first week of the legislative session would have banned AEAs from providing anything but special education and absorbed AEA decision-making under the Iowa Department of Education. Her updated proposal, submitted following backlash across the state and hesitancy among her own party, would allow AEAs to offer services beyond special education. However, it still would absorb AEA's oversight within the Department of Education. Funds for school districts' special education services that currently go to AEAs would instead go to the districts which would decide how to spend them. AEAs are too big, too distracted, and too expensive, said Reynolds Legislative Liaison Molly Severn during both subcommittee hearings. Republicans on the Senate subcommittee voted to advance the amended proposal to the full Senate Education Committee, but recommended it be amended considerably. Republicans on the House subcommittee did not move on Reynolds' proposal and said they wanted more time to consider Wednesday's public input. 
it's widely acknowledged that the AEA system does need a tune-up or more, a major overhaul, said Iowa Senator Ken Rosenboom, Republican from Pella. It's also widely acknowledged that we do not have all of the answers in front of us today. Iowa Representative Steve Bradley, Republican from Cascade, serves on the House Education Committee and told the Telegraph Herald he did not expect Reynolds' second proposal to remain as is. I think the amendments are probably fine, he said, also having prioritized AEA reform instead of ahead of the session. But it doesn't matter that the bill or this amendment say what the bill or this amendment say because this isn't the final legislation. Some people have said they want to see it broken up and measures considered separately. Since Reynolds introduced her first proposal, area lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have said the legislature should take its time if it in reforms AEAs, including Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, Democrat from Dubuque. This is not how you reimagine a whole system in the first weeks of the session and without comprehensive stakeholder input, she told the Telegraph Herald recently. You take at least the interim between legislative sessions and form a task force of experts. You do it thoroughly and don't just be reactionary. In a press release Wednesday, Reynolds thanked the Senate subcommittee Republicans for, quote, willingness to continue the conversation, unquote. From the start, my focus has been on improving special education for Iowa students with disabilities, she said. Wednesday's subcommittee rooms were packed, mostly with district superintendents and school board members, special education students and their parents, teachers and their unions, and disabilities advocate groups who overwhelmingly opposed the proposed legislation. Supporters mostly included Reynolds department heads, some other superintendents and lobbyists, and advocates for lower taxes or greater parental control of education. Reynolds' administrative officials insisted AEAs are inefficient because of an average of 19% of their funding goes to administrators, much more than a district superintendent's average salary. Opponents echo Jochum's point about Reynolds' proposal seeming too rushed. The amendment bill gives school districts until June 1st to decide whether they want to keep receiving special education services from their AEA or obtain those services a different way. If you care about reform and change and doing it in a responsible manner, bring it all on, bring in all of the voices, said parent Heather Stevers. Bring in the districts. This is like burning down a building when we could just light a candle. Other opponents said Reynolds' proposal particularly measures, uh, Reynolds' proposal particularly measures to make AEA boards advisory and give their authority to the Education Department or to redistribute AEA's property and assisted technologies to executive divisions would rob districts of local control. Keystone AEA Administrator Stan Reingans said he shared that concern, noting that his board is made up of nine members of school boards from among the 21 districts in his AEA. When our local school districts want us to add something or do something differently, they tell that board and they tell us, he told the Telegraph Herald. Ryan Gans also said districts would suffer from proposed changes to media services. Reynolds' proposal allows schools to co contract with AEAs 
for those services, but would take away the $33 million that currently funds them. I'm sure when it first started, media meant just books, Reingan said. But now it's robotics, it's planetariums, it's apps. A teacher in Riceville can have those for two weeks, then we'll pack up those robotics to, say, Sageville. We'll also repair them. If we're not in that business, districts will have to decide. Do we purchase this equipment and then pay for them and store them and repair them or find someone else to do it? During the Senate subcommittee meetings, though, Okaboji Community School Superintendent Todd Abrahamson said his district had not received services equal to the sum of its AEA uh, receives based on the district's enrollment. He also claimed his district could get its media services for $2 million less than through AEA. The article is accompanied by uh, a picture I had early mentioned earlier. I'll read the caption for the, from the picture. Carver Elementary School third graders Carson Dadisman, Braylon Etima, and Allison Kiefer work with a science kit that was supplied by Keystone Area Education Area on Wednesday in Dubuque. The picture was taken by Dave Kettering of the Telegraph Herald. At the bottom of the front page, we have a story by Grace Nyland. 2023 sees most local flights since 2019. Area officials said they are encouraged by the relatively high rate of leisure travel that took place out of Dubuque Regional Airport last year as efforts continue to further bolster service. A total of 19,022 commercial enplanements were recorded at the airport last year, according to local officials. Nearly all those passengers flew with Avello Airlines, a low-cost carrier that launched its flights between Dubuque and Orlando, Florida last spring, and later added and subsequently eliminated a twice-weekly flight to Las Vegas, Nevada. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, 2023 was our best year so far, said Airport Director Todd Dalsing. That just goes to show that there is definitely a demand for local service in our catchment area. The 2023 figure tops totals from 2021, the last full year of commercial service at the airport, but trails pre-pandemic numbers totaling just over half of the 36,592 passengers serviced by the airport in 2019 when American Airlines was offering service between Dubuque and Chicago. Of all, all, of all available destinations, Orlando dominated with 2023 totals with 77% of all passengers, or 14,556 people, flying from Dubuque to the Florida favorite. Just over 2,800 flew to Las Vegas and the remaining 1,633 passengers flew with Sun Country to various chartered locations in 2022, the year American Airlines discontinued service to Dubuque in September. A total of 14,355 passengers flew out of the airport. For us, it's all about providing quality air service to the tri-state area, whether it's the leisure service that we currently offer or the daily service we're looking to reestablish, Dalsing said. 
Avello began offering twice-weekly flights between Dubuque and Orlando in March 2023. To guarantee the airline would bring service to the community, the city of Dubuque and Dubuque County contributed $500,000 each to a minimum revenue guarantee agreement from which Avello could pull to offset its initial investment in the community. The airline had withdrawn all those funds by September. That same month, Avello began offering air service between Dubuque and Las Vegas, but two months later, the airline announced it would end that route January 6. In January, the airline announced its Orlando flights will switch to a seasonal schedule. Those flights will pause in April and return in November. Despite those scheduled changes, Dubuque Mayor Brad Kavanaugh said the city's agreement with Avello was absolutely worth the investment because it helped the city maintain more than 10,000 yearly enplanements, an essential number for securing federal funding. Airports above that total receive $1 million in federal funding annually from the Airport Improvement Program. Those below 10,000 annual enplanements receive $150,000. I know there have been some frustrations with there being more scheduling adjustments than you'd typically see with a legacy or regional carrier, but I cannot stress enough how important it is that Avello stepped in when we needed it, Kavanaugh said. Local leaders also said the, the strong presence of leisure travel shown by the 2023 employment totals will be another tool in the Dubuque Community Air Service Task Force's ongoing efforts to seek an air carrier that will return daily service between Dubuque Regional Airport and a regional hub. With just that leisure, leisure travel, we had about half of the employment totals we saw when we had daily scheduled service, said Molly Grover, CEO of Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce and Task Force member. It's a strong indicator that the demand is there for leisure travel. The next step is renewing daily service. In September, the airport received a federal $1.5 million grant to be used toward that goal. The task force spent 2023 engaging on a near-constant basis with legacy and regional airlines in hopes of renewing daily service, Glover said. Grover said. Members also distributed a survey to area residents and businesses to seek feedback on the types and frequency of travel desired by the tri-state area community. Results from that study and an update on the task force's efforts will be presented at a chamber-sponsored forum February 22nd. The article is accompanied by a couple of pictures, one of which is of passengers waiting in line for security before boarding Avello Airlines' inaugural flight out of Dubuque Regional Airport on March 22, 2023. There's also a picture of Todd Dalsey and of Molly Grover, who had were mentioned in the article. And now we look at the opinion page for an other view column by Thomas Greep, G-R-I-E-P, Thomas Greep, is recently returned to Dubuque after teaching abroad for more than 40 years. Thomas Greep's other view column is headlined, Iowa should take lesson from Kansas on perils of deep tax cuts. 
in the interest of possibly saving Iowa from repeating the debacle that occurred recently in another Midwestern state, it might be helpful to take a brief look at what happened in Kansas after Sam Brownback was elected governor. Shortly after Governor Brownback took office in 2011, the Republican-dominated state legislature made steep cuts to the state income tax and spending. In a Wall Street Journal op-ed column, the governor proclaimed that the cuts they made to the state budget showed that, quote, the American Midwest is fulfilling the dream of a Midwest renaissance in America. State income taxes for the wealthiest Kansas residents fell from 6.45% to 3.9%, and the governor promised to eventually reduce all state income taxes to zero. These cuts were accompanied by the promise that reduced taxes would result in dramatic job creation and economic growth. Unfortunately, the effect of these tax cuts on the budget was catastrophic. The state lost more than 10% of its budget in the first year of Brownback's tax cuts, and by fiscal year 2015, Kansas had a shortfall of almost $800 million. This had immediate and predictable effects. Not only did Moody's downgrade the state's credit rating, but the governor was also forced to shore up the budget by taking money from the Kansas Department of Transportation. As a result, only 200 miles of roads were repaired in 2015, as opposed to the approximately 1,200 miles that are cared for in a typical year. Brownback and his supporters in the legislature made massive cuts in spending on education. Predictably, things fell apart. In 2016, Kansas fell to 44th in per-pupil spending and on many important educational benchmarks. Kansas students were in the lower 25%, and this in a state which once had among the best schools in the nation. The, the promised job growth did not materialize. In fact, by 2015, the state began to lose jobs, and in 2016, Kansas was ranked 46th in job growth. By 2017, the years of low economic growth, increasing deficits, and dramatic spending cuts had taken their toll. The governor's disapproval rating rose to 65%. As a result, the Kansas legislature had second thoughts and removed many of the recently passed tax cuts. Brownback's dream of a Midwest renaissance turned out to be something of a nightmare. The parallels between Kansas a decade ago and Iowa today are clear. Reminiscent of Brownback's claim that his early days in office, from his early days in office, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds brags that Iowa is on the rise. She now proposes that earlier tax cuts be followed up with a flat tax rate that would go down to 3.5% in 2025 with the goal of eventually eliminated state income tax altogether. Sound familiar? Iowa also appears to be on a path that mirrors Kansas in education. Iowa's schools, at one time consistently ranked among the top five in the nation, have now fallen to 24th, according to the U.S. News & World Report. It remains to be seen how they will fare in a time of yet further reduced state revenues. 
an echo of Brownback's refusal of a federal grant of $31.5 million to help implement the Affordable Care Act, Reynolds has decided to turn down funds from a summer program that would have provided money to help low-income families with food costs. Brownback's tax and spending cuts did not serve Kansas well. A valid fear is that Reynolds and her supporters in the legislature are blind to the painful lessons our neighbors learned about the consequences of these measures. That was the Other View column uh, offered by Thomas Greep, G-R-I-E-P. Thomas Greep recently returned to Dubuque after teaching abroad for more than 40 years. And there is a, accompanying a picture of Thomas Greep. And the other view column is authored by Arthur Sear. And, of course, Arthur is a frequent contributor to the opinion page with his other view columns, as he is the author of After the Cold War, uh, New York University Press, Palgrave Macmillan. Arthur Sear, C-Y-R. His column is titled, NATO Remains an Enduring Alliance. On January 25, Turkey at last approved membership for Sweden in NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This is an historic step in several important respects. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 and the resulting bloody war have provided incentive for previously neutral Finland and Sweden to join this alliance. Ankara's strong objections to Sweden related to providing haven for Turkish extremists, were finally overcome. Last July, President Joe Biden attended the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. The last stop on the itinerary was new NATO member Finland in World War II. Finland's military fought much larger Soviet forces to a draw. NATO is a remarkably durable alliance. Nations led by the United States and Britain signed the NATO Treaty in Washington, D.C. in April 1949. By contrast, alliances lasted on average only five years during the long Napoleonic Wars of two centuries ago. Our present alliance began in direct response to Soviet expansionism during and after World War II. By 1949, the Cold War was on. Today, the organization pursues various diverse missions, including humanitarian relief. The collapse of East Europe communist regimes, followed by the Soviet Union, <clears throat> ended the Cold War, but not conflict in Europe. In 2008, Russian troops invaded a portion of Georgia, following an attack by Georgian troops on South Ossetia, Russia, encouraged and fostered these breakaway efforts. In 2014, Russia intervened in eastern Ukraine and annexed the territory of Crimea. Conclusion of the Cold War was a great victory for the policy of restrained deterrence termed containment. Every United States president from Harry Truman, when the Cold War commenced, to George H.W. Bush, when that conflict ended, supported this foundational security policy. NATO has endured for various reasons. Bureaucracies seek self-perpetuation 
and modern militaries represent potent political lobbies. However, the strategic realities of a now dangerously aggressive expansionist Russia under President Vladimir Putin is the most important incentive and has re-energized the alliance. Putin continually probes for ways to separate allies from the U.S. Also present is the danger of renewed violence among ethnic groups in southeastern Europe. NATO today has a range of missions including, but going beyond, self-defense narrowly defined. Forces have operated well beyond the North Atlantic region, including notably in Afghanistan. Humanitarian work has included transport and other support missions during the COVID-19 pandemic. This in turn opens the door to a range of positive and productive activities beyond traditional military defense and security. With further expansion of economic development in Eastern Europe, the Middle East, North Africa, and more widely, demand for better education, health care, and related humanitarian activities also will grow. This could lead to further development of the Alliance's capacities and involvement beyond purely military dimensions. Article 5 of the NATO Treaty states that an attack on one member nation is an attack on all. The 9-11 terrorist strikes on New York and Washington, D.C. and in the sky over Pennsylvania triggered this clause for the first time. After the final defeat of Napoleon, Britain spearheaded cooperation among Europe's nations to keep the peace. This encouraged stability on the continent for a century. Today, NATO performs roughly the same strategic role, and Britain's sustained support for NATO and special rapport with the United States provide interesting leadership opportunities. This could counterbalance the political acrimony resulting from the nation's departure from the European Union. Britain's intelligence and military experience and capabilities are durable and effective. That's the other view column by Arthur I. Sear. And he has a note at the end here. He says, learn more. Henry A. Kissinger, The Troubled Partnership and other books. There is a picture of Arthur I. Sear accompanying the column. You are listening to the reading of the uh, Dubuque Telegraph Herald for this Thursday, February 1st, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. First, the funeral service listings listed alphabetically. Keith E. Beatty, B-E-A-T-Y, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. today, Thornburg, Grau, Funeral Home, and Cremation Service, Prairie du Chien. And from 10 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 2nd, St. Peter Lutheran Church, Prairie du Chien. Service, 11 a.m. Friday at the church. Agnes Bernhard, Bellevue, Iowa. Visitation, 8.30 to 9.45 a.m. today. St. Raphael Cathedral, Mass of Christian Burial, 10 a.m. today at the church. Alice J. Cass Hins. H-I-N-Z, Alice J. Cass Hins of Dubuque, Visitation 9 to 10, Tuesday, February 6, St. Anthony Catholic Church, Mass of Christian Burial, 10 a.m. Tuesday at the church.
Rosalie Donahue, Dubuque. Wake service, 3.30 today, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory on Rockdale Road. Visitation, 4 to 6.30 today at the funeral home. Mass of Christian Burial, 10 a.m. Friday, February 2nd, St. Raphael Cathedral. Jerome D. Heike, or Hike. I'll spell that. It's H-E-I-K-E, Jerome D. Hike. Platteville, Wisconsin, Celebration of Life, noon to 2 p.m. Saturday, February 3rd, Howden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cuba City, Wisconsin. Richard W. Kuhn, K-U-H-N, Richard W. Kuhn, Dubuque, Rosary Service, 2 p.m. today, St. John the Baptist Catholic Church, Piazza, Visitation, 3 to 7 p.m. today, and at 1 p.m. Friday, February 2nd, at the church. Wake service, 7 p.m. today at the church. Service, 2 p.m. Friday at the church. Lois M. Locke, L-O-E-C-K-E, could be Leck, Locke. Lois M. Locke, Manchester, Iowa. Visitation, 9.30 to 10.45 today. St. Mary Catholic Church, Manchester, Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m. today at the church. Stephanie A. Malaro, M-A-L-L-A-R-O, Stephanie A. Malaro, Dubuque, Visitation, 9 to 10.30 today, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, Rockdale Road, Service, 10.30 today at the church. Dan Marburger, Sibula, Iowa, Visitation, 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, February 4th, Calvary Lutheran Church, Sibula. Service, 4 p.m. Saturday at the church. Sharon K. Myers, that's spelled M-Y-E-R-S, Sharon K. Myers, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. today and 10 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 2nd. Martin Schwartz Funeral Home and Crematory, Lancaster. Service, 11 a.m. Friday, at the funeral home. Mary C. Norwood, Savannah, Illinois. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd. Faith Lutheran Church, Elizabeth. Service, 11 a.m. Saturday, at the church. Jean M. Reiter, R-E-I-T-E-R, Jean M. Reiter, Cascade, Iowa. Visitation, 9 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 2nd. St. Martin Catholic Church, Cascade, service 11 a.m. Friday at the church. Donald E. Rice, Fulton, Illinois, visitation 10 to 11.30 a.m. Friday, February 2nd, Law Jones Funeral Home, Savannah, service 11.30 a.m. Friday at the funeral home. Thomas W. Root, Savannah, Illinois, visitation 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. Saturday, February 24th, Community United Church of Christ, Savannah, Celebration of Life, 5.30 p.m. Saturday at the church. Hazel M. Spear, S-P-E-E-R, Hazel M. Spear, Hanover, Illinois, Visitation, 10 a.m. to noon Saturday, February 3rd, Hanover United Presbyterian Church. Service, noon Saturday at the church. David V. Tone, Maquoketa, Iowa, Visitation, 9.30 to 11 a.m., Saturday, February 3rd, United Church of Christ, Maquoketa, 
Celebration of Life, 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Ann Willits, W-I-L-L-I-T-S, Ann Willits, Cincinnati, Wisconsin. Wake, 6.30 p.m. Sunday, February 4th, St. Dominic Villa, Hazel Green. Service, 10.30, Monday, February 5th, St. Joseph Catholic Church, Cincinnati. And finally, Carol Yadoff, Y-A-D-O-F-F, Preston, Iowa. Visitation, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Saturday, February 3rd, St. John's Lutheran Church, Preston. Service, 1 p.m. Saturday at the church. And that concludes the list of funeral services. And now we look at our obituaries. We have from East Dubuque, Illinois, Karen Rose Dressler Reason, R-E-I-S-E-N, Karen Rose Dressler Reason, 76, East Dubuque, passed away 1.50 a.m. on Tuesday, January 30, at Innoble Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Dubuque. Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 Saturday, February 3rd, St. Mary Church, East Dubuque, Illinois, with Father Dennis Vargas officiating. Burial will follow in the East Dubuque Cemetery. Visitation 2.30 to 7 p.m. on Friday, February 2nd, at the Miller Funeral Home in East Dubuque, Illinois. Parish Scripture Service will be held 2 p.m., led by Karen's nephew, Father Chad Dressler. There will be an additional visitation 9 to 9.45 a.m. on Saturday at the funeral home. That was for Karen R. Karen Rose Dressler, Reason, of East Dubuque, Illinois. And the uh, funeral home is uh, listed as, uh, let me see if I can refine that, the Miller Funeral Home in East Dubuque, Illinois. Ronald A. Spillane, S-P-I-L-L-A-N-E, Ronald A. Spillane of East Dubuque, Illinois, died on January 24th at the age of 82 following a short illness. Funeral Mass will be held 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd at St. Michael Catholic Church, Galena. Friends may call after 9.30 a.m. until the time of Mass. Cremation rites have been accorded the Furlong Funeral Chapel Galena is assisting the service, and uh, the family requests that any donation be made in, in honor, in his honor, to Hospice of Dubuque, or the United Way of Dubuque Area Tri-States. Online condolences at FurlongFuneralChapel.com. That's for Ronald A. Spillane of East Dubuque, Illinois. Margaret M. Bertling. 92, of Worthington, Iowa, died on Tuesday, January 30, at Unity Point Finley Hospital, Dubuque. Visitation, 9 to 11 a.m., Friday, February 2nd, at Kramer Funeral Home, Dyersville. Funeral services at 11 a.m. on Friday, February 2nd, at Kramer Funeral Home, Dyersville, with burial in St. Paul Cemetery, Worthington, Iowa, that's for Margaret M. Bertling of Worthington and, the, and the, as we mentioned, the Kramer Funeral Home. Dyersville's Assist the Family, at which information is available at its website, kramerfuneral.com. Memorials may be sent to the family in care of the funeral home at Dyersville. 
William J. Bill Gerber, G-E-R-B-E-R, age 52, died suddenly on January 29th at home. In honor of Bill's life, a memorial service will be held 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd in the Mount Carmel Bluffs Terrace Community Room, and the pastor, Matt Phelps, will be officiating. Family and friends are invited to remain after the service for food and fellowship from 12 until 2 p.m. The family requests that in lieu of flowers, memorials may be made in Bill's name to the Operation Empower Liberty Recovery Center in Dubuque or the Crescent Community Health Center of Dubuque. That's for William J. Bill Gerber, age 52, of Dubuque. And finally, Elaine M. Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, Elaine M. Snyder, 78, of Madison, Wisconsin, passed away Monday, January 29th, at A Grace Hospice Care in Fitchburg. Funeral Mass, 11 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd, at St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church in Madison, Father J. Poster officiating. Visitation, 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. Friday, February 2nd, at the church. Additional visitation, 10 a.m. to 10.45 a.m. Saturday, prior to the Mass, also at the church. Burial in St. Rose Cemetery, Cuba City, Wisconsin, Funeral arrangements are entrusted at the Casey McNett Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cuba City, for Elaine M. Snyder of Madison, Wisconsin. And that concludes the obituaries listed in today's edition. And now turning to the sports page, we have the regular Thursday uh, Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week. It's Megan Kramer of Bellevue Marquette. And the story is headlined, Kramer Makes Rebounding History at Marquette. And this is reported by Shannon Mum. Bellevue Marquette's Megan Kramer etched her name in the school record books last week, and it might be a while before anyone knocks off her off the leaderboard. The senior became the first basketball player in program history to reach 1,000 career rebounds following an 18-rebound performance against Wyoming Midland last Wednesday. The Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week also holds school records for rebounds in a single game with 26 and most rebounds in a season with 367. If someone would have told me as a freshman that I'd finish my career with over 1,000 rebounds, I wouldn't have believed it, she said. But during my junior year, I realized it was a real possibility and that has been my goal all season long. It's pretty exciting because not a lot of people ever get close to a thousand rebounds, and I hope it's a record that will take a while for someone to break. Kramer has been in the starting lineup for the Bohawks since her sophomore season and has continued to improve elements of her game each year. Megan is five feet eleven and just a strong farm girl, Bellevue Marquette coach Jim Ketman said. She gives everything she's got, but she does it quietly. She wants the ball more than anyone else on the court, and she's very smart. She reads where the ball is going up, going to go, and she's always one step ahead of everyone else. Kramer leads the defenders 
in both scoring and rebounds per game. She is currently averaging 14 points and 16.3 rebounds per game. She is scoring more for us this year, and she has really become a complete player, Ketman said. She's been getting some calls from some Division II coaches because people are noticing her rebounding numbers, but she passes and scores well, too. Kramer said she knew she needed 18 rebounds to break the record heading into the Wyoming game. I really wanted to break it at home, or close to home, at Bellevue, but it's just happened that way, she said. She would have certainly broken it the following night as well with a 22.22 rebound double-double in a win over Bellevue. What Megan's been able to do on the boards has just been over the top, Ketman said. That's going to be a tough record to beat. If anyone comes close to it, Kramer hopes it's her younger sister, Amber, a sophomore. I think it will be a record that sticks around for a while, but I'd be okay if she was the one to end up breaking it, Megan said. Ketman will surely miss Megan's presence on both ends of the floor next season, but is happy to know there's another Kramer there to fill her shoes. Megan has been a great leader for our team, and she comes from a hard-working farm family, he said. I've never... I never have to worry about the Kramer girls because they go after it every single night. They are consistent, and I always know what I will get from them. The article is accompanied by uh, Athlete of the Week, Megan Kramer, recently, as she uh, uh, grabs for a rebound in action in Bellevue, Marquette, uh, playing for Bellevue, Marquette. And the picture is taken by Dave Kettering of the Telegraph Herald. They have another girl's Basketball story reported by Steve Stoles and headline top-ranked Galena pulls away in second half to win. It was senior night for the Galena girls basketball team at Galena High School on Wednesday and Pirates senior Addie Heffel was more than ready to make one of her last home games a memorable one. The decorated All-State basketball and volleyball player rose to the occasion scoring 18 points despite sitting nine minutes with foul trouble to pace Galena to a convincing 52-26 win. Galena, the number one ranked Class 1A team in Illinois, improved to 22-1 with their 26th straight NUIC win over the last three seasons. Heffel was not surprised with the results from the tenacious Pirates defense. We really rely on our defense, especially when we go nine minutes with only one score, Heffel said. Our defense is what keeps us in these games when we are not shooting well. Galena threatened to run away early, jumping to an 11 to nothing lead on five fast-break baskets by Heffel and Grace Furlong, Gracie Furlong off the five RRSM turnovers. Heffel picked up her second foul with 2.23 left in the first quarter and came out of the game with Galena leading 11-4. The Pirates would manage only one basket in the next nine minutes before Heffel returned and promptly scored with 1.19 left in the half for an 18-11 lead. We jumped out to an 11-2 lead early and then got into some foul trouble, said Galena coach Jamie Watson. One basket in nine minutes is tough, but if you continue to defend, no matter who is in the game, 
you're going to be just fine, and that's how it turned out today. The first half was characterized by suffocating defense on both sides, with each team pressing full court and trapping the ball whenever possible. RRSM never got on track as the Galena pressure forced turnover after turnover. 17 in the first half and 30 for the game. RRSM managed only 16 shots for the whole half. The Pirates shot only 4 for 4 of for, for 4 for 21, 19% after the early game flurry that kept the game close despite the turnover and shooting woes from RRSM. Galena looked like the number one team in the state in the third quarter, scoring on six straight possessions, with Heffel making four shots in a row that pushed the Pirates' lead to a more comfortable 33-15, with 3.20 left in the third quarter. We always say the third quarter is our quarter, and it definitely showed tonight, Heffel said, about the impressive start. We came out after halftime and a rough second quarter, and we had the mindset that we're going to dominate the rest of the game. RRSM continued to struggle in the third, shooting only 20% with eight more turnovers. The quarter ended with a 37-17 Galena lead and the game safely in control. To put an exclamation point on the game, Furlong exploded for seven straight points to start the fourth quarter and put the game out of reach. Furlong finished with 22 points, including 15 in the second half the lead to lead the Pirates. Abigail Frank and Addison Albrecht each scored six points to lead RRSM. With one week in the regular season left, Watson knows another undefeated conference season, 10 and nothing, is within their reach. It's a good win tonight. It's always fun to play them because there's always a lot of people in the stands, Watson said. 26 straight conference wins is awesome. I'm thrilled with how we played tonight. You go back to the uh, Dubuque and Tri-State page, uh, page two of the main section. We have a story by Elizabeth Kelsey, and the headline is, Local Students Take Top Honors at Statewide Robotics Competition. This is reported by Elizabeth Kelsey, and it, it's, it goes this way. For Elena Shimkus, S-H-I-M-K-U-S, Elena, for Elena Shimkus, the best part of participating in competitive robotics is the people she has met. It's fun to interact with different people because you're constantly learning new things about each other and about programming, said the fifth grader at Carver Elementary School, Dubuque. This past weekend, Elena and seven of her fellow fifth graders participated in the statewide first Lego League competition in Ames, Iowa. The robotics competition was the culmination of months of work for the Micro Cougars team who met at least once per week since October to construct and code a robot. During Sunday's competition, 4th through 8th grade students operated their robot in a Lego course to complete various tasks. Teams also gave presentations about how they built their robots and presented an innovation project, which asked students to explore their hobbies and use art and technology to solve a problem. The Carver team earned first place out of 50 teams for their innovation project about microbits, small programmable devices that help kids learn about coding. After surveying Carver students, 
and learning that over 90% of them had never heard of microbits, the team wrote, illustrated, and printed a children's book about microbits and what they can do to complete with videos that demonstrate how to use the devices. During the competition, the judges were very impressed, said the team's coach Donna Schmidt, a technology coach at Carver. It was great to see the kids learning and working together. Team member Jay Arnold said he enjoyed the process of creating the book, videos, and presentation for the innovation project. It can help you understand different jobs like being an author or illustrator, programming robots, and being an engineer, he said. Other local schools also participated at the state competition, including teams from Marshall Elementary School, Dubuque, and Maquoketa Middle School. A team from Resurrection Elementary School in Dubuque with 10 4th and 5th grade students earned a second place award in the Core Values category. The award is given to teams who most strongly demonstrate first LEGO League's core values of discovery, innovation, impact, inclusion, teamwork, and fun during the competition. The kids are asked some pretty pointed questions about how they work together and make decisions as a team, said team coach Dan Ernst. I thought the students did a really great job of emphasizing how they solve problems or disagreements by taking a vote. Massa Kelly, Middle Catholic School, Dubuque, also sent three teams to the state tournament with a total of 19 students. Among them was 8th grader Adeline Noel, who earned the Grace Murray Hopper Award, recognizing female team member who shows innovation, leadership, and teamwork. Adeline, a first-time participant in First Lego League, said she enjoyed working on the robot and her team's innovation project, an app to make an art more accessible and interesting for students. I'm really proud of how we built and designed this entire app, she said. I also really like coding things and Legos. I have a Lego closet at my house because it's always been fun just putting things together and seeing what happens. There is a picture of a team of uh, innovators and inventors uh, working uh, during the competition in Ames. And that does it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on this Thursday, February 1st. I'm your reader, Wally Helms. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.